Hi everyone. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry. Welcome to this week's Constitution segment recap. All right, so I'm going to do my best to get us started here. Um, let's see. There we go. All right, so forgive me, I am still learning some of these technical tools that I have at my disposal. But again, well, welcome to essentially Constitution Thursday. This is our Constitution segment recap of our Restore Freedom Weekly episode. This week, of course, the topic was what the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled this week about election integrity. And uh, this specifically was the Antrim County election fraud case. Again, a decision that came out by the Michigan Court of Appeals by a panel of three judges. Uh, the parties involved were um, Mr. Bailey, the original defendant was Antrim County, and then uh, the Michigan Secretary of State voluntarily joined in, intervened as a defendant. And again, this was a decision published uh, by the Michigan Court of Appeals just um, at the tail end of last week. Again, this is just a constitution segment recap. It's a simple recap. So if you wanna hear the full discussion, which was jam-packed full of information, um, please make sure you watch that full episode, episode number 17. So this week on Tuesday, we also had a um, true or false question as we always do, Tuesday true or false. Uh, so true or false. It's the election officials job to ensure the integrity of elections and the public has no right to challenge something wrong they see happening on election day. Is that true or false? Again, it's the whole statement written as one. Well, your options are true. It's the election official, official's job to ensure the integrity of elections. The public has no right to challenge something they think they see happening wrong on election day or false. In addition to the election officials appointed or elected to supervise elections, the public may serve as election workers, poll watchers, or election challengers. Each state has procedures for the people in these roles to challenge things that undermine the election's integrity. Well, you might guess the answer to the question was false. In addition to the election officials appointed or elected to supervise elections, the public may serve as election workers, poll watchers, or election challengers. And each state has their own procedures for the people in these roles to challenge things that undermine the election's integrity. So before we get started with the recap of everything we discussed on Tuesday, I did tell you that I needed to make sure that we were going to uh, kind of get up to speed on a few more statutes and constitutional provisions that we didn't have time to really cover on Tuesday, but that would really be helpful for you in doing your own review of this topic. So let's start with um, the U.S. Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, where we are guaranteed a Republican form of government, where we elect government representatives, but we the people retain ultimate control and authority. What about that word election? How important could it possibly be? Well, uh, the word election is in the Florida Constitution 124 times. The word election is in the Michigan Constitution 105 times. I'd say it's pretty important. So what does the Florida Constitution say about elections? And yes, the case we're talking about was in the Michigan Court of Appeals, but nonetheless, I focus on Michigan and Florida every week to um, best reach uh, the audiences that tend to travel back and forth between both or used to live in one state and now the other. At any rate, what does Florida the Florida Constitution say about elections? Well, if you look at Article 5, the entire article is on suffrage and elections. So that would be the first resource that you would want to really check out. Specifically, Article 5, Section 3. This is amazing because when we move down here and we registered to vote and you're looking at the little screen and you're signing a bunch of things and you go, wait, what am I signing? One of the screens, and I'm pretty sure I took a screenshot of it um, on my phone, 
says, and this is the oath, when you're when you sign to register to vote, you have to swear to this. Each eligible citizen upon registering shall subscribe the following. I do solemnly swear that I will protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Florida, and that I am qualified to register as an elector under the Constitution and laws of the state of Florida. Isn't that fabulous? I mean, just as a voter, if you want to vote, you are proclaiming that you will support, you will protect and defend the Constitution. I don't know. Maybe you don't feel strongly about, about it as I do, but I love it. Anyway, Florida Constitution, Article 3, Section 11 says that there shall be no special law or general law of local application pertaining to the election, jurisdiction, or duties of officers except officers of municipalities, chartered counties, special districts, or local governmental agencies. So um, in other words, it's a statewide system for elections because elections is very important, the, the whole concept of our elections. Also, if you look at Article 8, Section 1D, it talks about county officers and uh, that the county officers are selected by the electors in an election. And those county officers are sheriff, tax collector, property appraiser, supervisor of elections, and clerk of circuit court. And although a county charter can modify and do quite a few things, a county charter cannot change the fact that those offices must in fact be filled and that they are established in, um, they, the charters can't establish any manner of selection other than by election of the electors for the county. So in other words, the procedure that is used to select those people must be uniform and by election throughout the county. Sorry guys, I'm having uh, apparently my phone blow up. We are just going to um, get it to stop right now. Okay, ironically, it's either my husband or Lori and uh, well, anyway, usually I think they try to watch the lives. Okay. So uh, what does the Michigan constitution say about elections? Well, the case that we're talking about uh, in the full segment, the full episode, uh, focuses on two portions of the Michigan constitution relating to elections. But the entire elections portion, the whole thing in the Michigan constitution is only three pages long has 10 short sections. It's literally three pages long. The whole thing, the whole article, article two, about the um, about elections in Michigan. So it's short enough for you to read the entire thing yet today. All right. What does Florida law say about elections? So we talked about the constitution for both states. What about Florida law? Well, um, the Florida statute 101.111 talks about those voter challenges, which are very important, and they come pretty darn early in the process of reading through uh, Florida laws. And um, I have included that for you here. You'll be able to go back and pause it later and all that if you want to, but we're going to kind of breeze on and go to the next one. Uh, Florida statute 101.131, watchers at the polls. Now, these are the ones that are selected through the political parties or candidates, uh, candidate committees or political com um, committees that are formed for a specific ballot question. Um, but at any rate, those are uh, the, the full language of how those are selected and all that uh, through that statute is available for you there. All right. There are another three segments of Florida law that I wanted to touch base on real quick. Uh, Florida statute 101.572, 102.014, and 102.031. So the first one gives uh, all the specifics on the public's right to inspect ballots. Uh, the next one is for poll worker recruitment and training. If you wanted to sign up to be a poll worker as part of my Wednesday's Way to Get Involved challenge this week. And uh, the last one is maintenance of good, 
uh, of good order at polls, authorities, persons allowed to be in polling rooms and early voting areas, and the unlawful solicitation of voters. So in other words, you can't just be a random person randomly doing whatever you want while there's an election going on because they want to ensure the privacy as well as the integrity of the elections. Uh, but um, understanding what those limitations are. And I haven't even read fully the whole statute. So who knows, maybe there's stuff in there that's unconstitutional, but um, anyway, read through that uh, if you're in Florida and check that out. What does Michigan law say about elections? Well, we have um, a couple, two, three different sections that really closely relate. I mean, there's campaign finance is a whole chapter, but Michigan election law is mostly codified in MCL uh, chapter 168. So MCL 168.801 talks about the canvas of votes by precinct inspectors and the public having access, as well as 168.811 talks about um, the how long the records have to be kept and when they're allowed to start destroying records. I realized just now that I had certain sections uh, bolded that I wanted to stand out to you uh, that somehow no longer have the bolding. But at any rate, uh, you can check out these statutes on your own as well or replay the video and hit pause so you can fully read that. But those are some ones that you'd want to check out. Uh, then once we get really into the discussion of the case, as we um, started the full episode on Tuesday, uh, we started talking about the motion to dismiss. And um, that, of course, came about from um, MCR 2.116, and the government essentially filed their motion to dismiss based on three grounds, uh, C4, C8, and C10. Again, we talked about that in much more detail on Tuesday, and we will have further videos talking just about the motion to dismiss uh, concept and rules so that you can utilize that in your own cases as may come up now or in the future. Uh, MCL 168.31 we talked about that. Uh, I'm not going to repeat the whole context there, but that there, when you request an audit under the, the statute there, um, it does not, um, it's not considered a recount. It does not change any of the certified election results. It's just one step of the process. It's just um, an audit. Uh, then uh, the court, we went back to talking about how the court um, was discussing MCR 2.116 C8. Uh, again, uh, when you do make <clears throat> challenges, when you do make one of those motions, it is challenging the legal sufficiency of the claim that was made by uh, typically the plaintiff. <clears throat> and uh, based, um, the court has to make its decision based on the facts that are alleged in the complaint. In fact, the court has to, must, assume uh, and accept all of the allegations in the complaint as true when determining whether or not they should dismiss the complaint uh, based on this motion. And uh, these motions can only be granted when the claim is so unenforceable, so obviously unenforceable, that there's no factual development that could justify recovery. So there's no um, evidence that could ever come out that would that would show why um, and how the court could intervene and offer some sort of uh, repair to the situation. Uh, we next talked about uh, Article 2, Section 41H of the Michigan Constitution. That is uh, the self-executing provision that essentially started the whole lawsuit we were discussing. Um, also kind of jumped back over to MCL 168.31 a, which is um, what state law says about how those constitutional audits are done. I'm just going to simply say, if you could see all the highlighted marks, it is the state law says it's the secretary of state that gets to say how the audits will take place. Um, they shall conduct the election audits as prescribed in their own procedures. Uh, they shall do the training and certification of county clerks to do them. They shall um, select, the Secretary of State shall select the um, precincts that um, are audited within each county, and the Secretary of State shall supervise the whole process starts finish. What does that mean? 
Well, as we talked about in those constitutional provisions and the state law, that means that when you blend all of it, the voters in Michigan may request an audit of elections that are run by the Secretary of State, but the Secretary of State gets to choose how to run the audit, choose what aspects are audited. They get to train county clerks and staff on how to conduct the audit, and they get to supervise the audit or audit, or in other words, the court said, according to the court, it said that voters in Michigan may request an audit of elections run by the Secretary of State, but the Secretary of State does the audit of its own results. Hmm. If that doesn't seem quite right to you, I pointed out on Tuesday, then you are quite right. And I asked you to look at Michigan Constitution as the court talks about the Michigan State Constitution, Article 2, Section 4 two and talks about how it's the legislature that shall enact laws to preserve the purity of elections and guard against the abuses of the elective process. And uh, then we also talked about the statute that uh, the plaintiff cited, MCL 168.861, which clearly says that for when, when you have fraudulent or illegal voting or tampering with the ballots, uh, the remedy by quo warranto shall remain in full force. So you can bring a quo warranto, um, Latin term, you can bring that kind of a case to court to, um, um, you're asking the court to get involved based on those fraudulent allegations. Uh, somehow, even though the statute very clearly says that we still have that right together with anything else that we're allowed to file uh, to challenge some fraudulent actions that happened during an election. Somehow the Court of Appeals held that the statute does not allow the plaintiff in this case to file a quo, quo warrento claim as an individual in Michigan. Yep, that is the emoji I stuck in there. I left it for you as part of this Constitution segment recap. You'll see why. Among other things, the plaintiff's complaint questioned whether 10 distinct fraudulent acts were committed and asked for discovery to ascertain which ones were true. And discovery was not yet done when the court dismissed the case. You can look at his paragraph number 29, which is, um, I didn't see the whole complaint, but his paragraph number 29 was actually retyped into the court's decision that I shared with you. Um, and the link for which I believe is in the comments here. If not, it'll be shared uh, tomorrow in our Freedom Fighting Tools. At any rate, um, the plaintiff also clearly stated that defendant Antrim County initially registered phantom voters for presidential candidate Joe Biden and that the Dominion machines were altered and switched votes for him. And they were quoting his paragraph number 30. So when you talk about a different statute that allows the plaintiff to file a quo warranto claim, that's MCL 600.4545, the Court of Appeals recognized that that statute provides for an action in the nature of a quo warranto, quo warranto claim whenever it appears that material fraud or error has been committed at any election. And they stated that the material fraud or error means fraud or error that might have affected the outcome of the election. Might have. But yet somehow the court concluded that there were no allegations in his complaint to support that these irregularities would have affected the outcome. Not sure how that's the case. Hence the picture of, say what, in this slide right here. That leads us to the plaintiff's equal protection claim. Uh, in the Michigan Constitution, there's an Article 1, Section 2 uh, provision that says that no person shall be denied the equal protection of the laws. And uh, the court kind of explained what's, what that means, but then said... Um, yeah, but he wasn't specific enough. The plaintiff wasn't specific enough when he claimed that he was being discriminated against. So because it wasn't specific enough, he didn't state it right in the, you know, in the correct way. Yeah, we're not going to let him succeed on those on that claim either.
So what about allowing, allowing him to reword that claim or any of them to add the right words into his complaint? We talked about the fact that's called amending the complaint. In fact, the very court rule that supposedly allowed the government to, um, you know, to motion to dismiss this case, that same court rule, if you look later on, MCR 2.116 I-5 requires the court to give the plaintiff an opportunity to amend his pleadings and um, that the grounds, uh, that's because the grounds that they're saying the, the case should be dismissed upon are, uh, they fall under MCR 2.116 C8, meaning he has no, he did not state a claim upon which relief can be granted. That's what the Court of Appeals determined. Um, and so this court rule says that the trial court had to give him an option to amend his complaint uh, unless the evidence showed at the time that the amendment would not be justified and um, that there's further explanation that in these cases, the court has to allow, has to grant leave uh, to amend the complaint um, and should only deny it if there are specific reasons given, such as undue delay, which does not apply here, bad faith, which does not apply here, uh, repeated failure to cure other defects through other prior amendments, does not apply here, or futility, which there's no specific allegation of that. Um, they tried to claim the whole thing was was moot, but again, the Court of Appeals said it's not moot. So I would think that would apply to the futility arguments as well. Although the court did say um, a really strange comment uh, that we talked about, I think it was page four, footnote two, um, something to the effect of that um, uh, they don't know, you know, what purpose there would even be for him to be able to get this evidence because he can't officially challenge the certified results anyway. Well, we talked about that and why that's not the only thing that's important. But anyway, uh, so uh, in this uh, proposed complaint that the plaintiff uh, did try to submit on, I believe it was May 8th of 2021, he added new factual allegations, new facts, which of course he had discovered. He added new theories of liability. In other words, new um new laws or um, better yet, it's really a new way to say the same laws and same constitutional provisions lead to the same result he was asking for. But again, uh, they were starting to argue that he wasn't wording it the right way. So he was wording it the right way, according to them. And he was also trying to add new defendants. Now, when the um, Court of Appeals was analyzing this, they um, their discussion was mainly about how these new defendants wouldn't have enough notice with trial happening the very next month. So um, it wouldn't be fair to allow him to submit this amended complaint. Again, if it were me, I would have said, well, then, you know, don't allow, uh, you know, an, an amended complaint to be filed as to that one particular defendant that would be really uh, impacted unfairly. Um, if you, worst case scenario, wanted to exclude all of the the newly parted, newly um, added defendants that the plaintiff was trying to include, um, all of them were government officials involved in the election or the, the audit, except for one. Um, so, you know, at the worst case, just take all the new people out and still leave Antrim County and the Secretary of State, then there's no issue about notice. He's literally correcting the complaint to do what they're complaining he didn't do all along. So at any rate, I don't agree that he would have to reward his complaint in that way, but whatever. Uh, they said, you have to change it. And then he said, okay. And then they said, oh, actually, no, you can't change it. So what does that mean? The final recap of the the Michigan Court of Appeals newest decision on election integrity is. Yep, it's a whole lot of hmm and oh and who the heck knows. 
So for more information, you can hit up this. Um, in fact, I will go ahead and make it a little bit bigger for you. You can hit up our full episode at this link that I have included on the screen here, as well as um, here is the link for the Michigan Court of Appeals full decision. It's only 12 pages, so it's, it's actually something that you can digest and not be totally overwhelmed. Um, but uh, that decision, I, I saved it onto my um, my whatever server and uh, made it available to you uh, through this link. So please feel free to do that uh, and access it that way. Like I said, um, there's some other resources that we shared in the Wednesday way to get involved challenge, as well as a whole bunch that we will be sharing in the Friday's freedom fighting tools segment that will be uh, shared tomorrow. So uh, with that, I, um, Thank you for joining me today for our Constitution segment recap of this very important topic of election integrity. Again, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is with the Michigan Constitution and Michigan state law. And today we brought in some of those Florida elements, Florida Constitution, Florida state law. But regardless of where you are, number one, Michigan elections will impact you no matter what state you're in, because that's just how it happens with national elections, especially the presidential election. But Number two, the procedures and the policies and the things in place and the topics we're talking about as it, as applies to Michigan, those are the same things that you need to be watching on what's happening in your own state. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Constitutional Attorney Catherine Henry, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow on our Friday's Freedom Fighting Tool segment. Have a wonderful day. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Constitutional Attorney Catherine Henry and welcome to this week's Constitution Segment Recap. Today is just the Constitution Segment Recap. It's not the full discussion on the subject of the week. Uh, that was um, what we did in our live video on Tuesday at noon. We always do those full episodes for the week on noon at, on Tuesdays. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next Tuesday at noon for our next week's full episode. But uh, today we want to go over and give you just a recap of the parts of the Constitution and state law that we talked about this week. Um, so uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and transition here. Um, so this week we were talking about jurisdiction and uh, that it's the court's power to hear and decide any kind of case. We talked about the three main kinds of jurisdiction, territorial, personal, and subject matter. We talked about uh, territorial being, you know, not some legalese, but just it just means the territory, the physical place. Does the court have jurisdiction over things in that particular location? Uh, is it a Georgia court trying to hear matters uh, over property that is located in Florida? That wouldn't make any sense. Right. Um, and what about um uh, well, and here we have the example, a different example of the 57th District Court in uh, Allegan County, Michigan. It's only allowed to hear uh, cases that cover matters that happen in Allegan County. Uh, personal jurisdiction. We talked about that being a court's power to bring a person into its adjudicative process. Basically, the court's authority over a particular person and to be able to decide matters uh, involving a particular person. Um, so we talked about that example that if there's a person that never lived in California, never visited California, didn't do any business in California, doesn't own any property in California, no court in California would have personal jurisdiction over that person for any kind of case. Now, subject matter jurisdiction, that third one, we talked about that being jurisdiction over the nature of the case and the type of relief sought. So 
it's over the kind of case. If, if the court doesn't have jurisdiction over that kind of case, no matter who the particular uh, defendants are, for example, in a criminal case, then the court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction. And this is something that applies equally in criminal cases or in civil cases. Subject matter jurisdiction is important. For example, a federal bankruptcy court cannot decide anything about a divorce case because they don't have subject matter jurisdiction. And um, a trial court has to, must, dismiss a case where there is no subject matter jurisdiction. And so um, no one in the case can be stopped from raising that issue. Usually it would be the defense, uh, the defendant who raises that issue. But sometimes it's you have a complaint filed by a, a plaintiff and then, you know, you might have an, a counter complaint filed by the original defendant. And they're in this intense litigation. Then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my gosh, the plaintiff says, oh, my gosh, I just realized the court doesn't even have subject matter jurisdiction over this issue. So. Um, I need to tell the court about this and they have to dismiss the case. It doesn't matter who, which party it is. A party cannot be stopped from raising this issue. And I'll make this a little bit bigger so you can see that that particular that applies to other courts and other states. But that particular quote came from the um, in contempt, uh, in Ray contempt of Dorsey, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2014. Um, furthermore. Again, this is just something that the Michigan Supreme Court has said in 2001, but this is something the U.S. Supreme Court and all the other courts in the, in the U.S. Um, have to acknowledge that the lack of subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time and it can't be waived. You can't, the court can't assume that you just, you're okay with the court not having subject matter jurisdiction. And they can't say, oh, you didn't raise this right away. You didn't raise it during your trial. No, you can even raise subject matter jurisdiction as a problem after a case has gone to trial. Even if it's a criminal case and you've already been convicted by a jury, you could still raise this. If the court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction, the whole case as though it never happened. In fact, the next one is a Michigan Supreme Court case. Again, it's just from Michigan, but this concept applies all over and you can find cases that say this if you do your own searching. But the practical result of successfully challenging a case because the court does not have subject matter jurisdiction is to prevent a case from taking place or to prevent a trial from taking place at all rather than to just give the court certain rules that they have to follow when the case is going on. Another case, and this is Johnson v. Zerbst. Yeah, I pronounced that three times fast. Uh, United States Supreme Court case from 1938. Yes, U.S. Supreme Court nearly 100 years ago. They are the ones that said that it's a judgment of conviction, that, that a judgment of conviction pronounced by a court without jurisdiction is void. Whole thing is though it never even happened. And any judge in the U.S., anywhere in the U.S., has to be alert to look at the facts, check things out, investigate if need be, because if it is true that um, as to an allegation that there's no subject matter jurisdiction and it would make the trial void, the court has the duty to look at that and make sure that they do, in fact, have subject matter jurisdiction if somebody claims that they don't. So we also talked about MCL, which is a Michigan state law, 750.552, where in order to prove that someone is guilty of criminal trespassing, that a prosecutor has to uh, prove beyond reasonable doubt that the person remained on someone's property without lawful authority or a good faith of, of having a good faith claim that they had lawful authority to be there after someone told them to leave and that the person telling them to leave had lawful authority to make them leave. 
we talked about different pieces and parts to that. Um, there's all kinds of uh, different um, elements uh, talking about, you know, we start as people with authority to act unless there is a legal and constitutional restriction created to stop us from doing such a thing. Uh, that government has no rights, no source of rights or property ownership or whatever on its own, but that it derives all of its authority and power from we the people. Uh, all of those things are more specifically discussed and cited in the legal briefs that I have submitted in this Allegan County case and available on our website, restorefreedomkh.com under the resources tab and then documents, uh, specifically going to that top uh, blue button at the top right now, uh, that's the Allegan County documents and the most recent Allegan County documents um, are separate for now, I apologize, but you can find uh, the PDF that gives you the link for all of those under the updates tab. We just posted that link today under the updates tab. Um, Anyway, so uh, this is just a recap, though, that in general, what kinds of constitutional protections apply? Well, in a case like this, uh, in my case, being charged with criminal trespassing on government-owned property that is open to the general public, it's very clear that there is a 14th Amendment equal protection claim because for all property open to the general public, all members of the public have an equal right to access that. And the direct quotes from the cases uh, saying these things, <coughs> excuse me, um, those are available in those uh, documents, those briefs that I mentioned. But the concept to focus on, the main constitutional provision or segment to look at is the 14th Amendment uh, protections uh, for equal protection. Uh, also, there's First Amendment issues, speech, assembly, petition, uh, because the First Amendment protects a right of access to places traditionally open to the public. So, there, <coughs> excuse me, there's uh, First Amendment protections on top of the general equal protection for all people. We also talked about um, some rules of professional conduct that are specific to attorneys. Um, these are Michigan rules of professional conduct, but there are similar provisions in your own state's um, rules of professional conduct for attorneys. A lawyer is a part of the judicial system charged with upholding the law. And I'll make this a little bit bigger yet. Let's see, does it make it bigger? Yes. That is uh, Michigan Rule of Professional Conduct 1.6, looking at the official comment explaining that rule. Lawyers uh, have a duty when necessary to challenge the rectitude of official action and uphold legal process. That's in uh, Rule 1.0 in, in the preamble. This is not just for prosecuting attorneys. This is for all attorneys. And if you look at Rule of Professional Conduct for Michigan Attorneys 8.4, the official comment uh, mentions that a lawyer may refuse to comply with an obligation imposed by law if a good faith belief, uh, upon a good faith belief that no valid obligation exists. And of course, above all else, a lawyer has a duty to protect and inform the public. And that's in any jurisdiction. Uh, <clears throat> so we talked about the different elements of um, my particular case uh, that I have the authority to be on public property open to the general public, uh, that I have the authority to um, be there for, you know, under equal protection and uh, my First Amendment protections. But then we talked about the flip side, the authority of a government official to kick somebody off of uh, government property or specifically property open to the general public. And uh, we talked about some big concepts that government was created by the people, acts on behalf of the people, and derives its authority from the people. That we, the people, 
through the Constitution, defined and limited the powers of government. So no government official can do anything unless we have specifically given them the authority to do that in the U.S. or Michigan constitutions or other state constitution uh, if you live somewhere else. So for my case, that meant the clerk had, uh, she, she still is not able to point to any authority anywhere in the U.S. or Michigan constitutions or even in Michigan state law that says she has the authority to remove me from that property. But we also talked about um, some specific state laws, such as MCL 600.1825, subdivision three, that prohibited them from arresting me for trespassing or really any number of things while I'm there to serve as an attorney. Public officials cannot be arrested for the act of doing their job. And my job was to protect and inform the public. And that's what I was there doing that day. And there's no doubt they don't argue that I was there as an attorney that day. Um, another state law, 750.543Z, says that the prosecution, in case they couldn't figure out what the First Amendment was about or what it meant to them, this state law says that they shall not prosecute any person for conduct presumptively protected by the First Amendment. Uh, this particular township's own resolution, uh, it um, protected the activities that the circulators were there doing that day that I was there defending the right to do um, as long as it was done beyond 100 feet from the entrance of the building. Um, but also we talked about concepts like um, that ordinances and not resolutions are the things that um, can be used to regulate the people, that courts have no subject matter jurisdiction to hear cases of someone violating a, a, a local resolution, but rather violating a local law or ordinance or um, charter. And those are more specifically uh, all the laws and cases and everything that talk about those concepts are in those briefs that we talked about. Um, we also talked about that election law specifically preempts uh, any kind of local regulation where a local government is trying to interfere with election activity or um, the fact that state law preempts um, uh, the concepts or, or um, regulations for uh, vehicle and parking, that those laws preempt local regulations so that they cannot interfere with um, the vehicles or parking activities. Um, if there are local regulations about vehicles or parking, um, then state laws provide the, the way of how uh, those local regulations have to be written, in what format, what are they allowed to do? Are they allowed to make it uh, a crime, like a misdemeanor or a felony? Or if you violate a parking law, does it have to just be um, a civil infraction where you, you, know, you face no jail time? Um, so those kinds of things are more fully discussed in those briefs that we mentioned. Uh, local officials can't just have endless authority to throw people off the property. And that's um, a bigger constitutional discussion that is um, discussed more fully in those briefs. And we talked about criminal intent that um, nearly all all crimes you can't be convicted of unless the prosecutor proves beyond a reasonable doubt that you had the mens rea or the intent to do the act that constituted the crime. So if you're physically present somewhere and you either have the authority to be there or you um, justifiably think that you have the authority to be there, there's no criminal intent to trespass. So there's no jurisdiction for a court to um, preside over a case where um, there's, not even, uh, it's, there's not even an allegation that you intended to do that. Um, and I guess that was it. That was, it came to an abrupt end, but, um, those are the main things that we talked about. So, um, again, uh, this is just the constitution segment recap, and it's just something that's meant to give you that overview of what we talked about. Um, some of the parts of the constitution or laws or cases that we talked about to help refresh your memory and maybe 
give you the opportunity to, to grab a piece of information you didn't quite catch in the, the full episode on Tuesday. So with that being said, I hope that you were able to catch our uh, way to get involved uh, challenge this week or um, request, ask in this case for this week, um, yesterday as well as we hope that you tune in tomorrow for our freedom fighting tools on Friday and uh, Saturday for our restore freedom goodie of the week, as well as uh, Sunday's biblical insight on this very important topic. But of course, we also look forward to seeing you next Tuesday at noon for the next full episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. Again, I'm constitutional attorney, Catherine Henry. Thank you so much and have a great day. Welcome to this week's Constitution Segment Recap. This is just a simple recap, so to hear the entire discussion, watch the full episode that aired on Tuesday. All legal citations, graphics, and links are available in the slideshow, a link for which is in the description of this segment. So, this week we had a great discussion about the remaining Michigan and Florida proposals. And today we need to go ahead and round that discussion out and do these uh, final um, yes or no conversations uh, as we close in on a very important midterm election. So, of course, the topic this week has been Florida proposals one, two, and three, and Michigan proposals one and two, good, bad, constitutional. And... Uh, we specifically, we can't cover all the aspects that there would be to cover in uh, each of these five proposals because, uh, especially the Michigan ones, there is quite a bit jam-packed into each one of those. But the aspects that I wanted to cover with you are uh, the constitutionality of special property tax exemptions for certain public service workers, uh, property tax exemptions for flood mitigation, abolishment of the Constitution Revision Commission in Florida, term limits and financial reporting requirements, idealist voting, state-funded voting conveniences, and private election funding like Zuckerbucks that we saw big in the 2020 elections. True or false, we always start the week off, right, with a morning, uh, Tuesday morning true or false question, which this week was, as long as I fully read the official summary of each proposal on the ballot, I am informed enough to vote on them. Of course, make sure that you do check out that opportunity to participate on our website, RestoreFreedomKH.com, or go right to Twitter, Telegram, LinkedIn, True Social, or YouTube on our community page to participate that way. Now you might think it's strange that we are talking about, uh, back that up a little bit, the constitutionality of these uh, proposed constitutional amendments because after all, if they're approved by the voters by the necessary margins, then aren't they part of the constitution? And if so, then aren't they by definition constitutional? Well, they would be part of the state constitution, but the question remains is if they are in conflict with other parts of the state constitution or with the U.S. constitution. And as we start that thought, we need to remember that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Of course, you can look to U.S. Constitution Article 6 for that. This means that no federal law, no state law, no state constitutional provision, no court order, or any kind of other government action that is repugnant to the Constitution can stand. In other words, any law, state constitutional provision, court order, or any government action that is repugnant to the Constitution is void on its face. It's as though it never even existed. This is because all judges and government officials are required to support and defend the U.S. Constitution. And of course, if they're serving in a state capacity, their state constitution as well. Now, the Florida Proposal 1, it's, um, it's a yes vote for me. And the reason being is because this is talking about allowing for um, basically a... a, a um, not so much a credit or offset, but so that when the property assessors are going out to assess your home, 
uh, in order to determine how much in property taxes you should pay in real estate taxes, that they are not, the current constitution says they're not allowed to consider any improvements you're making specifically for wind mitigation because we do have a lot of hurricanes here in Florida. But this proposal, Proposal 1, is adding flood mitigation to that exception as well, so that if you are out there making improvements that are specific to flood mitigation, then any of those improvements, the dollar value of that, cannot actually increase your stated value in terms of um, what they're basing your property taxes on. And that does not help hinder uh, you know, one class of people over another in any way, shape, or form. So that, like I said, has a yes vote from me. Proposal two is uh, to the total abolition, getting rid of abolishing the Constitution Revision Commission. We went into the specifics why, but essentially you have this whole group of people that are not elected by the people, the voters. They're elected by other people who are elected by the voters. Some people uh, on that commission would be elected by the governor, some by the legislature, some by uh, the um, Supreme Court, etc. And that's not what a constitutional republic is all about. In fact, we are guaranteed that republican form of government by our constitution in Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution. So having a board like the Constitution Revision Commission in the first place is not even constitutional. So yes, absolutely, you have to vote yes on this one because a no vote is a vote against Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution. And as a Florida voter, you took an oath to support and defend the U.S. and Florida state constitutions. So what about Proposal 3 to amend the Florida state constitution? This is similar to Proposal 1, except... This is to encourage people to serve in those important roles as classroom teachers, law enforcement officers, corrections officers, firefighters, emergency medical technicians, paramedics, child welfare services professionals, active duty members of the United States Armed Forces, and the Florida National Guard. Now, here's the thing. Although it is great that we want to find ways to encourage and support people who are in those roles, the problem here is that we're saying, well, something that applies to everyone, homestead tax exemptions, um, that that rate is going to be special or carved out or done something unique just for this special certain small class of individuals. Uh, the reason why we have a problem with that is, well, government's main purpose is to protect our God-given liberties, and in so doing... They have to make sure they're providing that equal protection of the law, including of the state constitution, which, ironically enough, it is in the Florida Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, that we are equal in the eyes of the law. So you can't then have a specialized class of people that are treated differently for purposes of tax, uh, you know, special tax status, basically. So that is a big fat no. We unfortunately have to vote no, even though we do want to encourage people to uh, be of quality in serving in those roles that are essential to our uh, community and to our state. Now, moving on to the Florida, uh, excuse me, the Michigan Proposal 1, uh, two main things. There's financial disclosure for people that are serving in those public roles. And two, there is a term limit uh, provided there for 12 years. Now, here's the thing. Um, financial disclosures in general are great, but in the full episode, we talk about how this ballot proposal falls short and doesn't actually uh, do what it needs to do in order for that to be passed through. But also, as far as term limits go, term limits are already set at 14 years for those roles, and we're only lowering it to 12. What's the point? If it's going to be a term limit, make it a term limit. This is a no, a no for me, although not as hard of a no as Proposal 2, which does a lot of really bad things. It seems to do good, but it has a lot of bad things. It puts into the state constitution, not just state law, that you don't need a, a photo ID to vote, which is bad, uh, but also it, it creates state-funded requirements 
for voter uh, conveniences like absentee voting. It's no longer the voter that has to, you know, get off their tuchus and make something happen there. No, the state has to do it, and it will cost millions, at least $13.5 million alone, just in the little bit where we discussed and disclosed in the video today. Also, it allows for Zuckerbucks or private funding for elections. Bad deal all the way around, so vote no on that. I left a lot of other information uh, in the slideshow about different aspects that apply to other parts of these proposals. They are bad news. Uh, please make sure to vote no on Michigan Proposal uh, 1 and 2. And uh, with that being said, if you want to round out our true or false Tuesday answer, it, of course, was false because the official summary of the ballot proposals is still just that, an official summary. So please make sure to read that entire wording of those uh, proposals before you vote on them. Um, of course, make sure to check out our Wednesday Way to Get Involved challenge, uh, our full episode from Tuesday and the fr Friday's Freedom Fighting Tool.